I really hope that we can start to drop some of these terms like girl boss or babes club or just like almost like pink washing women in business. I don't want to be called a girl in business. Like I'm 50 years old. <laughs> this is Glass Ceiling Chronicles, a podcast that explores the stories of women that have packaged their knowledge and how the world responds to it. And I know that that usually starts with good intentions around like creating a community and helping people feel connected. But I do feel like it's just not necessary. My name is Ariel Lua Koka. My name is Kelly Chibiro. My name is Michelle Leclerc. My name is Ori Ochoa. My full name is Heba Malay. My name is Oyeda Babalaka. I'm Lauren Murray. My name is Shana Robinson. My name is Karen Anchetta. My name is Chinelo. My name is Meredith Davis. Hello there. My name is Tamnala Peterside, your host for this podcast. In this episode, it's all about perception. We start with a woman who has made it her business to give people new eyes. And I don't mean that in a figurative sense. I mean, actual eyes. Well, aesthetic eyes. But you get my point. We also examine the different ways society views women in business and spaces predominantly occupied by women. And then to close us off, we listen to the wisdom of Grandmother Wind as she shares the teachings of her elders on why now is the time for the rise of the feminine. My name is Andra Strievsky and I'm the sole proprietor of Strievsky Prosthetic Eyes. And just as it says in the title, I make prosthetic eyes. So they're made out of polymethyl methacrylate, which is a, a also known as plexiglass. It's like a very strong medical grade acrylic. It's the same thing that a lot of false teeth and crowns and stuff used to be made out of. Now they're using more resins from 3D printers and stuff like that. But yeah, so it's a really strong plastic. It helps people restore their ability to communicate when they've lost their eyes. If you've lost your eye, it could be a barrier um, to interacting with other people or to people feel uncomfortable a lot of the time. And so when they wear a prosthesis, they're able to make eye contact more easily. They feel often that they can recognize themselves, especially if this eye loss happened later in life and they were used to looking at themselves with two eyes. They really feel like um, it's part of their healing to be able to, to wear the eye and, and see themselves in the mirror. It, it doesn't function as an eye. Most people that wear it have one functioning eye. You can get around and get along quite well with one eye. Like basically you've lost some peripheral vision, but people are able to restore their depth perception just by other cues, visual cues that you can pick up on to, to figure out how to see depth over time. And so it's really impressive how well my clients function in the world with one, one working eye. I was fascinated. I mean, how does one decide to become an eye maker? What makes a person decide, you know what, I will spend the rest of my life, or at least this time in my life, making eyes for people? It turns out that it is a pretty close-knit profession, often passed from one generation to the next. And her biggest challenge was that 
because these businesses are often within a family for generations, they have an established pipeline and name recognition. And she, she was just a known player breaking into this field. And it required knocking on doors, attempting to build relationships with doctors during a pandemic. I was actually finishing up a PhD in philosophy, which is the kind of thing that doesn't necessarily <laughs> naturally yield to reliable employment. And I was pregnant and I, I wasn't able to TA that semester because I was due before the end of semester. So I was just answering phones in this medical building. And someone came into the clinic where I was working and he was an ocularist. He made prosthetic eyes and he told me that he was looking for some help. So he showed me how it worked and it's all done by hand. I was also a visual artist. So I did a lot of portrait painting and sculpting. And I just loved the idea of being able to paint people's eyes from life. So the, the client sits in front of you and you paint a match of their eye as they sit there. So I was like, this is such a neat way to apply that skill and have it intersect with, with medicine in that way. So when I was done my mat leave, I just called this guy up and I was like, hey, you want to give me a job? <laughs> and he ended up taking me on as his apprentice, which was such an honor because it can be really hard to get into this field. It's often handed down through generations because it's such a small niche and you have to apprentice for five years. So basically it ends up being a lot of people learning from a family member. But I was in a position where um, it, made, it just made sense for me to do this kind of work. I got my board certification uh, a couple of years ago and then the pandemic hit and our clinic closed and I reevaluated my future at that clinic and decided to give it a go and try to do it on my own. Did you finish the PhD though in philosophy? I did, yes. I finished the PhD. So uh, technically I could call myself doctor. Uh, but I feel like in this context, it would be misleading because like, I, <laughs> I don't want to give the, my clients the impression that like, I am qualified to give medical advice. I loved like lecturing and I love doing research, but I didn't ever actually think that would happen because I knew the job market was so crazy and I wasn't strategic in my academic career enough. I didn't go to the right schools or anything like that. I just loved reading and writing. So I just kept doing it for as long as I could. My very first client just cold called me out of the blue and she was like, I can't believe there's someone else doing this. Like, I'm so happy. I've been looking for a new ocularist and I've read about your background and how you're a painter and I just can't wait to meet you. And then I met her and she was so lovely. And I really feel like it was just so fortuitous that I was able to help her. She was able to help me. Like it felt like so mutual and such a good connection. What advice would you give anyone that's starting a business right mm. now in this climate? Mm. I'm going to pass on some advice that I heard on another podcast that, I, that I've held um, onto. And it was talking about businesses that have gone on to be very successful that have started in recessions. They use this image of the cactus, sort of like tenacity and resilience of the cactus um, characterizes these businesses. And as much as that may sound like an empty metaphor, I actually sometimes just 
picture a cactus when I'm stressed out and I'm like, you are a cactus. You are going to get through this. You don't even need any water. Just or like a little, the smallest bit of water. You're going to be fine. <laughs> Sometimes what we need is an eye in a world that just living straps us with biases and stereotypes we inherit from our parents, our peers, and the ability to realize this bias and seek that eye into another person's world not only helps us be more confident, it also gives us the courage to have eye contact and have difficult conversations. I asked all the women I interviewed if they had encountered or heard of any stereotypes of women in business. While some said no, that they had not recognized any biases, others had this to say. Some of the stereotypes I've heard, it's like, oh, women can only charge this much just because this is how much they're worth. A lot of us have to do a lot of work on really noting that our self-worth is innate. It's not about the amount of money you have. It's not about how much you're sacrificing. You're just worthy as a human. I think it's hard being a woman sometimes, like especially when you're going in to give like a sales pitch. So I still do get my husband to help me with certain things. And just being a woman entrepreneur, I'm like, I'm pretty sure, yeah, like you wouldn't be, tr if I was a man, you know, they wouldn't just like brush you off. They'd called certain places, you know, the boys club. So if you're a woman entrepreneur, you have to work, you know, even harder. But again, I think being an entrepreneur, that's where the resilience comes in. You just have to just be the best you can and just keep showing up this particular business is like, oh, how's your cute little soap business going? You know, and just says it in such a demeaning way. And I'm sure people don't have the intention of it coming through that way, but it is very frustrating considering the challenges that we've worked through and where the business used to be to where it's grown. This can be taken seriously. And what is usually your response in, in those kind of situations? Um, typically, I respond, you know, it's going great. We have a team of local makers that makes the product line, ships the product line, uh, and I run the business side. We're in a commercial space right now that's over 2,700 square feet, uh, and we supply, you know, shops across Canada and the U.S. with our product line. So, yeah, our, our soap business is going very well. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Love it. Love so it. That's how I say it. <laughs> There's maybe a higher level of empathy and understanding and ability to listen and really understand the needs of the clients, but also the communities that we're working in. We're working with a lot of organizations who are women-led as well. And so there's a stereotype, I'd say, about a more feminine type of leadership, perhaps. And so I'm really trying to approach my business from a values, a place of values first, rather than finance and, and, you know, profit first. And I think that that has been a strength, if anything, rather, I haven't, I haven't approached or heard negative stereotypes that I've had to contend with. The same qualities that you describe right now to another set of people could be seen as a weakness mm. and the same qualities you are seen as a strength. And so I think it's interesting how it can really play both ways. Mm -hmm. And my clients are nonprofit organizations, which is majority led by women and gender diverse people. So 
I think that I'm in a different position than some other entrepreneurs who may be working in different sectors that are more male dominated, like technology entrepreneurs or, you know, running a trades business or something like that. And so this concept of a more feminine approach to leadership, a feminine perspective of power, really piqued my interest. And so I reached out to Andrea Minot, by women and grandmother Wind, who was kind enough to share her thoughts and some of the teachings of her elders on feminine leadership. Women in the workforce, we got ourselves here to positions of power. We've got ourselves to positions of authority by utilizing our masculine skills. And that's not a bad thing. You know, we needed to. We had to in order to fit into the systems that exist. They're all requiring masculine skills. And so that's okay. I mean, we all have masculine skills. They're, the very fact that we could organize this conversation and have this podcast is our masculine skills being used. Like we organize our time, our drive to succeed, um, logic, analysis, systems, right? Those are all good. But when they turn not so good is when it's not tempered with feminine wisdom. My name is Andrea Menard. I'm a Métis woman from Treaty 1 territory, and I lived all across the Métis homeland, you know, throughout my youth. But at, presently, I'm living in the unceded traditional territory of the Squamish, the Tsleil-Waututh, and the Musqueam people. So I'm in Vancouver, B.C., and I carry the names Shkodegwe, which is an Anishinaabemowin name called Firewoman, and a, a Cree name, Din, which means Grandmother Wind. So Firewoman and Grandmother Wind. <laughs> and I, I take those names very seriously because I'm also the founder of a company called the Sacred Feminine Learning Lodge. And it has a deeply embedded philosophy of holistic teachings of, of finding balance within the four sacred bodies, the four sacred elements and all of these things. So, you know, that I have two of the elements in my traditional names is rather important. The Sacred Feminine Learning Lodge, in a nutshell, is a place where my job, my role as a facilitator of the rise of the sacred feminine happens. It's a place where people of all genders can come and learn to name and reclaim and embody the aspects of the sacred feminine. Now, every single human being has uh, both a sacred feminine and a sacred masculine part of themselves. You know, some of it is more developed in one than the other. It can have something to do with gender, but it's ultimately an aspect and a force of life. And because in this world, in this Western colonized patriarchal um, systemic world, the value on masculine skills, qualities, aspects of life are way higher than they are the feminine. The biggest embodiment of sacred feminine is Mother Earth. What's valued in this society is to lead like a sociopath, which is have zero feelings, don't worry about consequences, and do whatever it takes to get ahead. That's, that is deeply, deeply, deeply harmful. 
And then you bring in indigenous people or black people or people of color or people with disabilities, right? Nurturing men, all of those things have been devalued because what we bring to the table is, is much more of a holistic, feminine way of looking at the world. There is value in status, in ease of life if we are, if our proximity to whiteness is closer right? Than not. We have easier, more value in society if we are, you know, more proximity to maleness, right? So we have, there's a reason why there is this, this prejudice, this sexism in existing because there is value placed on the top of the hierarchy, which is a white male position of power. So women in the workforce we got ourselves here to positions of power. We've got ourselves to positions of authority by utilizing our masculine skills. And that's not a bad thing. You know, we needed to. We had to in order to fit into the systems that exist. They're all requiring masculine skills. And so that's okay. I mean, we all have masculine skills. They're, the very fact that we could organize this conversation and have this podcast is our masculine skills being used. Like we organize our time, we're creating our drive to succeed, logic, analysis, systems, right? Those are all good. But here's what I have learned. I'm in my 50s now and in my 30s, it's like my body shut down. All of my skills, I was using them so well. I was burning myself out. I didn't listen to my body's wisdom. I was go, go, go. And my body had a breakdown. I had an emotional breakdown. We're talking a six-month crying every day kind of emotional breakdown. And when I was done that emotional breakdown release, I was not the same person. And so all of a sudden I went, how do I function now? How do I succeed in a place that doesn't feel right anymore. And the truth was, I started noticing, and it's like I was given the stories of woman after woman after woman, all in their 30s and 40s, who had been stopped in their tracks, whether by, oh, stroke at 40, oh, brain injury, oh, some cancers all over, oh, woke up paralyzed one day, all these weird all these weird things stopped my friends and these women in their tracks. And all of a sudden, there was no way that they could keep going and doing what they were doing. Their old coping mechanisms, their old masculine drive was stopped in its tracks by something else. There was a gathering of elders that happened back in 2012. And they had a message for the world. And they talked about that we are entering a time, a big change, a return to the circle, the return to equality and balance. And that to me, that they said it was the rise of woman, the rise of the sacred feminine, the rise of honoring Mother Earth. So that means that we're in the rising of it. Human beings are going to have to make changes. They're going to have to learn how to value the feminine parts of life, Mother Earth our feelings, our nurturing spiritual selves, our interconnectedness to each other, our value, our compassion for each other. Those are feminine qualities of life. I believe that feelings are wisdom keepers. 
I will repeat that emotions, feelings are wisdom keepers. They are the keepers of that which is not known to us. And when we have been trained to disregard our feelings, we walk around blind in this world because our feelings tell us when something is wrong. Our feelings tell us when we've crossed our own line. We will value leaders that recognize they make steps and they feel the consequences of their actions. We will value leaders that say, if we put a dam here, ooh, just feel what Mother Earth is trying to tell us. This isn't good. Ooh, those animals are, this doesn't feel right. So get in touch with your feelings, learn how to access them, find helpers, find therapy, find groups that can discover how to access those things. No more apologizing for our feelings because that's our wisdom saying something's wrong, something's wrong, something's wrong. Or the feelings of passion is like something's right, something's right, this is good, good, go in this direction. It's wisdom. They are wisdom keepers. And women, if we stop apologizing for that wisdom coming through us through emotional expression, then we will teach others that it's okay. Then we will teach others that it is valuable to have access to this feeling. The next thing, the land is the greatest teacher and the greatest source of our healing and our wellness. The land is our source of wellness. So if we have not uh, given ourselves access to outside, to trees, to birds, to snow, to fresh air, these things are the source of our wellness. And if we're inside, like, look, we're talking in a little box right now with artificial lights and this and that. We have to counter that by being touched by the four elements, by the wind, by the sun, by the waters, and by the earth, and by fire. We need to be touched by those things that heal us. And we must do it often, and we must make space and time for that. For the celestial bodies, the sun, the moon, these are our natural helpers. And if we do not give ourselves access to that type of wisdom, we will never understand what wisdom we're talking about, what type of healing we're talking about. You have to make the choice to go out and be touched. Um, have you encountered pushback? in your teachings so far. Would you believe I have not? Because I'm not threatening or I'm not leaving anyone out. See, to me, the way of the rise of the sacred feminine, the way of the circle is that it's, it's like a circle versus a pyramid, where at the top of the pyramid is a group of, of folks that it really, really works well for, and everyone at the bottom, it doesn't work as well for. And there's a lot of parts that have been left out of that pyramid because the pyramid itself was a structure that was created to exclusively, you know, that was exclusive and was made to exclude certain parts of society. So that's how it was made. But let's just imagine, as my elders would say, was that the circle never left. All of life is a circle. And the circle is one of equality and unity and interconnectedness. And when you have a circle, there's no one in charge in a circle. Everyone on that circle has a place of value. As my elder said, she said, well, there's the butterfly has a place on this circle. You know, the elk has 
a place on the circle. You have a certain place on the circle. I have a place on the circle. And then she said, and that little virus, coronavirus, has a place on that circle. And your enemy has a place on that circle. And all of, like, all of life, you know, the water has a place on that circle. That big oak tree has a place on that circle. The mosquito has a place on that circle. And so when you think of it that way, I'm no more important and no less important than any of those things. And so I haven't had pushback because this circle includes everybody and everything. So there's no removing someone from the circle because it's uncomfortable. So that means that the person who's my enemy or the one who thinks, you know, let's say the one who wants to destroy women or the one who wants to destroy the, the indigenous people or black people, those people exist on this circle too, but they don't have any more power than I do. That means they have equal power with me, right? And and so we all have value in the circle. There's a reason why someone is opposite to us in belief. We are their enemy for the same reason, because there's something threatening about the other part. Now, I'm always going to be for someone who values life and values ex- inclusion and values diversity and values compassion and values equal space. And there's those who don't believe that. And I have to learn how to understand someone who believes the opposite to I do, that I do. There is space for that. There is space for us to evolve because of those different viewpoints. And this time of polarization, we all think, no, the other person has to disappear in order for me to be happy. Like, oh, all those other people, shut up, (laughs) you know, go away. And yes, that would make it easier, but that's not really why we've been polarized. We are being asked to go higher to think higher, to come closer to the circle instead of this, this opposite. We're here um, together to learn, to be a better, more compassionate, interrelated species. Um, I haven't received push at because I'm not attacking white male. I'm not attacking men. I'm not saying they are at fault. I'm saying the systems themselves are valuable But the way they've been created is now becoming obsolete. It just means we need to change them. And that means every single human being on this planet is part of the rise of the sacred feminine. You have been listening to an episode of Glass Ceiling Chronicles. Thank you to everyone who lended your voice to this episode. Special thanks to Andrea Strielski of Strielski prosthetic eyes and Andrea Menard of the Sacred Feminine Witch. Until next time, stay safe.